right, you can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. If you've got a Bible with, we'll be looking at Psalm 19, verses 1 through 14. Our oldest turned six on Thursday. And, uh, yep, that's her. <laughs> and uh, what happened this week, as I reflected on her turning six, uh, is what happens to me from time to time as a, as a Minnesota native. Uh, I, I, I just have these moments of panic from time to time realizing my children are growing up as residents of South Dakota. And it's... It's hard sometimes just recognizing that even though there's one state difference, uh, she's going to have a different perspective on life than I had. Uh, Unlike me, she's not growing up within walking distance of a lake uh, or even a hill for that matter. Unlike me, she's not growing up within a short drive of where four generations of at least paternal grandparents are buried. She's not growing up close to close to my extended family. Uh, unlike me, she's not growing up uh, within an hour of where the Minnesota Twins and the Vikings play. Although I am happy to report that she uh, has already determined to keep uh, yellow and purple together, and she tries to separate green and yellow at all at all costs. So we're at least doing something right. Unlike me, she's growing up in a state where children play a really weird game called Duck, Duck, Goose. This is maybe the hardest thing that she argues with me about this. And listen, I've seen the maps. I understand that 49 states play a game called Duck, Duck, Goose, and one state plays the game correctly called Duck, Duck, Gray Duck. I've seen the map, I recognize it's a minority, but the way I like to think about that issue is that God has always preserved a remnant of his his people. That's that's the way I think about that issue. But how you grow up, where you grow up, how you grow up, it really does affect your perspective on things, whether you grow up in South Dakota or Minnesota or wherever you grow up. You you, you grow up with a perspective based on where... Uh, where you where you come from, and it's one thing to have a flawed perspective on sports teams and childhood games. It's another thing to have a flawed perspective on life's biggest questions: Who is God? Who am I? What am I here for? What what is the key to finding joy and happiness? And there's huge consequences for having a flawed perspective on those questions. One of the things that Psalm 19 does for us is it serves as a calibration tool. Psalm 19 disrupts and it reorients our perspective in a way that gives life and joy. So let's look at the words of Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Beginning in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. 
In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray before we go any further. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. By the end of this brief time together, looking at these words, would you make it crystal clear in our minds how our words and our hearts can be acceptable in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 19 is divided into three sections. Uh, The first two sections... Uh, deal with how God is, the two different ways God has revealed himself to human beings. And the way that theologians describe these two different kinds of revelation is uh, the terms general revelation and special revelation. So in in verses 1 through 6, we we look at general revelation. This is how God's revealed himself in nature. And uh, this type of revelation, it's available to all peoples in all places. Uh, But the second section deals with what theologians call special revelation, which is how the other way God's revealed himself is through his words. And this type of revelation is embraced and received by his people. Those are the first two sections. And the third section of the psalm is a prayer that King David, the psalmist, prays in response to God's revealed, or God's revelation found in both of those two places. And what Psalm 19 is doing, Psalm 19 is inviting us to adopt a kind of perspective. It's inviting us to adopt a kind of worldview. C.S. Lewis referred to Psalm 19 as the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. But Psalm 19, it's more than just beautiful poetry. This is supernatural revelation that confronts our natural perspectives confronts the natural perspectives that we're born and grow up with. Psalm 19 invites us to conform our perspectives to itself. And when life malfunctions, at least things that are within our control, it's almost always because our our perspectives and our thinking is flawed. So we're going to approach these three sections as guides showing us where to look for a divine 
perspective or a biblical worldview. Verses 1 through 6 call us to look to the heavens. Then verses 7 through 11 call us to look to God's Word. And then verses 12 through 14 call us to look to God's Redeemer. So first, we're going to look, or if if we're going to have a divine perspective, we're going to look to the heavens. That's where our gaze is directed first. In verses 1 through 6, God reveals Himself generally. He reveals Himself through general revelation. And uh, verses 1 through 4, the heavens are considered. And then in verses five, 4 through 6, uh, one of the heavenly bodies is considered, namely the sun. So starting looking at verses 1 through 4, our gaze is directed upward. And in order to have a proper perspective on life and reality, we're directed to look outward and, and upward. And already there's something to note here. Already Psalm 19 flies in the face of our society because we're not directed to look inward for answers. There's no indication from Psalm 19 that the answers for life are found within ourselves, which is completely the opposite of what our society tells us. Our society is declaring to us day after day, look inside yourself for meaning. Be true to yourself. Lose everything, but don't lose this. Be true to yourself. Don't let anything outside yourself tell you who to be. No matter what things seem like on the outside, the only way you can know what's really true is by looking inside. People want answers. People want clarity. People want joy. But according to Psalm 19, looking inside ourselves is not a reliable starting place. We got to start by looking outside ourselves. And in this case, we're directed to look up. And, it, and it'll be clear as we go on, looking up is not going to be sufficient to give us all the answers. But, but if you start by looking outside of yourself, you're already on the trajectory to a, a much better or a much different answer at least than if you're going to start by looking inside yourself. So in verse 1, our, direct, our attention is directed to the heavens. Uh, in Scripture, the heavens are uh, just another way of referring to what's above us, referring to the sky, referring to where God has put the sun and, and the moon and the stars. And what are the heavens doing in verse 1? The heavens are speaking. The heavens are declaring something to us. They're proclaiming something to us. And what are they proclaiming? They're procl- proclaiming the glory of God. As, as we look to the heavenly bodies, we've come to understand that the, the heavens, uh, even in modern times, the, the heavens are even more amazing than we can imagine. There, there is an incredible amount of vastness and wonder as we, as we consider stars and planets that are farther away than we can even fathom. But we're told they're communicating something to us. They're saying to us, we're God's handiwork. We're made by the glorious one. In verses 2 through 4, we get, we get more information about this message. And uh, James Montgomery Boyce observed that the, the message proclaimed by the heavens has three different aspects to it. It's, it's continuous, it's abundant, and it's universal. So looking first at the fact that the the message of the heavens is continuous. Look at verse 2. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. It's not as though this message was proclaimed once and we're still hearing the faint echoes today. No, no. The heavens are constantly and continually 
declaring something to us. Night doesn't even stop the declaring of this message. Even while we're asleep at night, there's a message blaring above us saying, God is glorious. We look up during the day. The sun is so bright you can't even look at it for more than a few seconds without damaging your eyes. You look up at night. It doesn't stop at night. The sun and countless stars are declaring and proclaiming a message to us. It's a continual, constant message. It's not only continuous, but it's also an abundant message. It it says uh, the heavens, they pour out speech. This this word corresponds to the bubbling up of a spring or the the flowing of a stream. Uh, So it's not as though the heavens are just dripping this message. It's not as though there's just a faint whisper of the glory of God. The, The heavens are blaring this message. It's pouring out. It's gushing out. It's flowing from God's creation, specifically the heavens. God is glorious. It's a continuous message. It's an abundant message. We get some clarity about this continuous abundant message in verse 3. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I never heard any voice say anything like this before. Look at verse 3. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Depending on your translation, it might translate that last phrase, their voice is not heard. The implication is that this isn't a vocal message. This isn't a revelation that's communicated through human language. That doesn't mean it's not a clear message. Humans are familiar with clear messages that aren't spoken through language. I get home, some days, and Amy doesn't say a word, but there's a very clear message communicated sometimes. I'm not going to go into detail, but it's a very clear message. The heavens are communicating to us clearly, abundantly, continuously, without words, but it's a clear message. The third aspect of this message is it's universal. Look at verse 4. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. So how far does this message reach? This message reaches everyone. Everyone. This voiceless voice can be heard all throughout the earth. These, These wordless words, they travel to the end of the world. And then the text shifts as we go into verse 5, focusing... Um, from, from focusing on the heavens to focusing on one of these heavenly bodies, the sun. Uh, the sun is described as, as emerging here from a tent. And, and we're told that this emerging from the tent probably represents the nighttime sky. So the sun disappears uh, at, at dusk, but it, it, it appears from this tent at, at dawn. And every day, without fail, the sun rises in the east, and then it follows its circuit and it sets in the west. And why why does it do this? Why does the sun do this continually day after day after day? It has a thousand purposes. But the most important reason the sun does this again and again and again is declaring to us the glory of God. The sun doesn't do this half-heartedly. The sun doesn't do this grumbling. It doesn't procrastinate doesn't only do it when it only feels like it. No, we're told that the sun does this like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. We're told that the sun does this like a strong man who, who runs its course with joy. The sun completes this task 
joyfully and confidently and without hesitating. Notice at the end of verse 6, nothing is hidden from its heat. Nothing's hidden from its heat. So, so this gets at the universal nature of this, this revelation. Where can you go on earth to escape the effects of the sun? Nowhere. You can't go anywhere on earth. Even if you go to the South Pole, uh, you'll actually be thankful that you still haven't escaped the effects of the sun. In the same way, where can you go on earth and escape the sign of God's glory and power? You can't go anywhere. The sun as part of the heavens declares the glory of God and there's nothing that's hidden from its heat. So this is, this is what it means to look at and behold general revelation because God has revealed himself in nature. We, we ought to look outside of ourselves to have a proper perspective on life. And the heavens are declaring this continuous, abundant, universal message to us. God is glorious. But God hasn't only revealed himself as nature. He's also revealed himself through special revelation. And in a fallen world, in order to have a proper perspective on life, we must not only look to the heavens, but we must continue to look outside of ourselves to God's word. Look at verses 7 through 11, which describe the, the glories and excellencies of God's word. It's, it's, it's important to note that uh, the, the Hebrew name for God that's used in verses 1 through 6, uh, it, it's only used once in verse 1, and, it, and it's the generic word or the generic name for God. God the, God the creator. It's probably indicated in your Bible by a capital R with lowercase O-R-D. But in this section, the second and third sections, we have the personal Hebrew name of God used. It's used seven times. And it's probably indicated in your Bible with all capital letter, letters, L-O-R-D. And we're given a good illustration here of the difference between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation introduces you to God the Creator. But in a fallen world, where people where we're blinded by sin, where we're separated from God, we need more than just to know God as creator. We also need to know God as redeemer. We need to know God personally. We need to know his moral requirements. We need to know his plan of redemption and how he is reconciled, how he's provided a way so we can be reconciled to him. That's what comes from knowing God personally. So you look at these perfections, verses 7 through 9. These, these six different nouns that, that refer to different aspects of God's word. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts and commandments of the Lord, the fear and the rules of the Lord. As we survey these different ways of referring to God's word, what do they all have in common? They all recognize that God's word is authoritative. They recognize that God's word comes with the obligation of obedience. We don't like authority in our society. We don't like obedience. Maybe we like obedience even less. But look at the results of this authority that brings with it the obligation of obedience. Look at the results. These six verbs that also come along with these, these nouns in verses 7 through 9. God's word revives the soul. God's word makes simple people like us, wise. God's words brings joy to the heart. God's word enlightens 
the eyes. It endures forever. It's righteous altogether. In a fallen world, these are, these are big claims. These are big claims. But if these are true, just think what this word can have an effect. What kind of effect it can have on your life. Do you feel spiritually dry and distant from God? God's word revives the soul. You feel like you don't know what to do, like you're lacking wisdom. God's word is full of wisdom. That makes simple people like us wise. Do you ever feel sad or like you lack joy? God's word gives joy. Just as God made the sun to give light to the earth, so God's given his word to give light and shed light on our sin and the path to redemption. Do you ever feel like nothing lasts? Admiring God's word lasts forever. Do you ever feel like you're frustrated with injustice, how you've been treated or how other people are treated? God's word is the key to perfect righteousness and justice. And then there's these six different adjectives that also describe God's word in verses 7 through 10. God's word is perfect. God's word is sure. It's right and pure and clean and true. Do you get the impression here that this is a pretty high view of God's word in Psalm 19? Is there any value here? Based on this, this description, is this desirable? Here's a question. Does, does your view of God's Word match Psalm 19's view of God's Word? Do you believe Scripture is perfect? Do you believe it's full of wisdom? Do you believe it's totally true? Look how, dumb, or look how David summarizes the section, verses 10 and 11. God's Word is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings, of the honeycomb. David said God's, he says God's word is valuable. He says God's word is desirable. First part of verse 10, it's more valuable than gold. Money and wealth can bring you lots of joy. Money and wealth can solve a lot of problems. But money and wealth are also limited. They're also limited. I appreciate it so much what William Plummer wrote on this point of the limits of wealth. Wealth can heal no wounded spirit. Your money can cheer no sinking soul. Wealth can give no help to the desponding mind. It can defend against none of the worst ills of life. It can defend against some of the worst, or some of the ills of life, but not the worst ills. Of life. Wealth can point no weary traveler to the way of rest. And perhaps most significantly, money can give no assurance of happiness beyond the grave. No assurance of happiness behind or beyond the grave. But God's word can do all these things and a thousand times more. God's word is valuable. It's also desirable. Look at the second part of verse 10. It's sweeter than honey. God's word is better than the most delectable flavors. You just think of how much time we spend just pursuing these two, these two sources, seeking rewards from these two sources, the reservoir of wealth and money, the reservoir of tastes. There, there's, these are two giant industries 
I mean, there are millions of people employed full-time to help you maximize your wealth and maximize your taste experiences. But how much of your time and energy are spent agonizing over these two things? It's quite a bit of time we spend. How much of your time is spent seeking the greater satisfaction promised in God's Word? Gold and money are not inherently bad things. They can be enjoyed and used for great purposes. Honey and food are not bad things. They are intended to be enjoyed and they can be used for great purposes. Both of these things are proper priorities in life. But what priority does God's Word have in our lives? Psalm 19 says it's more valuable than gold. Psalm 19 says it's even sweeter than honey. If God's word is not a priority in your life, one of two things are probably happening. Either one, you just don't believe that it's this valuable or that it's this desirable. You just don't believe that either it's that problem or it's another problem. The problem is you just don't see yourself in need of it. You just don't see yourself as, as someone who needs a solution. You don't, you, don't have, you don't have a problem that needs to be solved. You're, you're satisfied with what you have. My prayer is that that wouldn't be true for any of us. For Bible people, we, we actually should be people who read the Bible. But Psalm 19 is not laying on a big guilt trip about Bibles, isn't it? Now, Psalm 19 is inviting us. Psalm 19 is inviting us to wealth greater than gold. It's inviting us to tastes sweeter than honey. Christian things are great. Christian fellowship's great. Christian music's great. Christian studies are great. Christian books are great. I'm going to recommend them all day long. Even Christian podcasts and sermons by great preachers are great. But here's the question we're presented with in Psalm 19. Do you love God's Word? We're being invited, come, cash in. Come and feast. As David recounts the wonders of God's revelation in nature and in, and in Scripture, uh, he briefly, briefly pauses and he does look inward. And as he examines himself, and as he examines what God's revelation has exposed within himself, he finds deficiency. He finds error and faults and sin. And this is what will happen as we look at God's revelation. But David doesn't linger looking in on himself. He turns his focus outward one more time to look third and finally to a Redeemer. If we're going to receive Psalm 19's invitation to give us perspective on life, we must look to God's Redeemer. And as David looks to his Redeemer, it's helpful just to consider three things in sequential order. David's requests, David's goal, and then David's God here in verses 12 through 14. Let's look at David's requests. Verse 12, he he asks, declare me innocent from hidden faults. David recognizes that such a powerful God knows us even better than we know ourselves. This is the God who made the sun. This is the God 
whose commandments are pure. And then the testimony of the whole Bible here is clear. We are sinful people. We are born fallen, condemned creatures. There is no one of Adam's race who is not affected by the effects of sin. David knows he needs to be forgiven of unknown sins. He recognizes that even unknown sins have no place in the presence of the holy God who made the heavens. Look at verse 13. He writes also, Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So just as there's hidden sins, there's also presumptuous sins, willful sins, sins we commit consciously. These sins are even more dangerous because of their hardening effect on us. Just as this law differentiates between uh, a murder that's committed accidentally and a, and a premeditated murder, so, so the Bible differentiates between hidden sins and presumptuous sins. But David knows he needs forgiveness from both of these sins. He also recognizes that sin is enslaving. He asks that it wouldn't have dominion over him. He recognizes sin's enslaving effect, the fact that sin is deceptive and it lies to us. It promises freedom in life, but then sin delivers slavery and death. If you're struggling with a particular sin right now, know that it's lying to you. It's promising you freedom and life, but it, if it hasn't already, will deliver sorrow and slavery and death. David requests freedom from sin so that it wouldn't enslave him. The world scoffs at this, but as Anthony Hakama writes, in, in the redemptive world, true freedom, in fact, consists in the joyful keeping of God's law. We think that true freedom is actually having whatever we want whenever we want it. But in the redemptive world, in the biblical framework, with a biblical perspective, true freedom, in fact, consists in the joyful keeping of God's word. Look at his final request in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. David recognizes there's a big difference between him and the sun that we read about in verses 4 through 6. The sun in the heavens, it gushes with the glory of God. It is constantly declaring God's glory. We, on the other hand, are enslaved to sin apart from God's grace. We, unlike the sun, far too often would prefer to have the heavens declaring our praises. Or at least the people around us. David requests, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And why is he asking for this? What's his goal? Look at verse 13. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David knows that God forgives sin. David knows that there must be some way, somehow, that God can declare us innocent. There must be some way God can keep us back from sin. There must be some way that he can remove sin's slave-like dominion over us. 
He knows that there's some way God might be able to reinstate us to the place that we were meant to occupy as people who are glorifying God with our mouths and with our, with our hearts. And if God can do that, then everything can be made right. And I can be declared blameless and innocent. David wants what every guilty man or any guilty man declared to be a criminal wants is the opportunity to be blameless. Is there some way I could just go back and be blameless and innocent again? He makes these requests because these are his goals and he makes these requests to his God. So third and finally in verse 14, the psalm ends with who he appeals to. He appeals to his Lord, his rock, and his Redeemer. Again, the Lord here, this is this this personal covenant name of God. David appeals here to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He appeals here to the God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. He He appeals to Yahweh, the God, the Creator. He appeals to his God. He appeals to his God who he refers to as my rock. His his God who serves as his greatest security. The God who is sturdy and unmoving and unshakable and ruthlessly reliable. Oh Lord, my rock. And then he ends it. He appeals to his redeemer. He appeals to a God who might be able to purchase David back after he's sold himself into slavery. How could God do this? How could God purchase back someone who has sold themselves into slavery to the dominion of sin? He does this through sending his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus can redeem David by offering his life and his blood in exchange for his. Jesus went to the cross and took the punishment for sin. Jesus died and then he rose from the dead three days days later. He ascended into heaven and he invites all people everywhere to turn from their sins and put their trust in him. David knew he had to look for salvation outside of himself. He knew that his own righteousness would never satisfy a God who's praised by the sun and the moon and the stars. David prays that he can be declared innocent somehow, not through his own actions, but through God's action. And as we look at this psalm today, knowing Jesus so much more clearly than David did, we recognize that this whole psalm is declaring the glory of of Jesus. In the New Testament, we come to learn that the world was created through Jesus and it was created by Jesus. So who is it? Whose handiwork is this, are the skies declaring and proclaiming? God the Son. In the New Testament, we learn that Jesus is God's Word made into the human flesh. So it's not only what is desirable and valuable, but who is valuable and desirable? Who is it who revives the soul and makes wise and rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes and endures forever and is righteous altogether? There's only one. 
Who is it who's perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true? There's only one. In the New Testament, we learn that that Jesus Christ is the one who ultimately redeems God's people and allows them to be restored as image bearers who adequately declare God's glory. So what what we find out is that God really, really did answer David's prayer. David can be declared innocent from hidden faults. David can be innocent of great transgression. And he had great transgression. David can be freed from the dominion of sin. David's words and his heart can be acceptable before God. And yours can too. All because of Jesus. Psalm 19 invites us to let David's prayer be our prayer. Turn away from your sin and put all your hope in God's Redeemer. I'm not sure what kind of perspective you came in with this morning, what your perspective was on life. I know way too many of you came in ready to play a game called Duck, Duck, Goose. But we get so much worse wrong than that. According to the world, you ought to look inside yourself for truth and meaning and purpose. According to the world, the heavens and nature, they communicate either uh, on the one hand an entirely closed system that's devoid of the supernatural or uh, a divine system, but you go and you define, you, you go find the divinity wherever you want to find it. According to the world, the greatest treasures are bought with money. According to the world, the greatest pleasures are experienced with the body. According to the world, you just need to make sure your words and your heart are acceptable in your own sight. Psalm 19 confronts this way of thinking. Psalm 19 invites us to join the heavens in the praise of the God of glory. According to Psalm 19, the heavens scream to us the glory of God. According to Psalm 19, God's word is authoritative and true and sufficient for our lives. According to Psalm 19, God's words are better than vast riches and delectable tastes. According to Psalm 19, sin enslaves and curses us, but keeping God's word is the true path of freedom. According to Psalm 19, the Lord is our God and our rock and our redeemer. So look to the heavens And look to Christ, who's the maker of the heavens. Look to God's word and to Christ, who's God's word made flesh. And look to God's redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Let's pray. Father, your glory goes beyond the heavens which is already farther than we can comprehend. The skies declare your glory. Every star and every planet has been individually created by you. You have revealed yourself in the wonderful vastness of the heavens. Father, we also recognize 
that your word is perfect. Our fallen souls are revived when we come in contact with your word. We're made wise. We're, we're led to revere you. Our eyes are enlightened. And you've also revealed yourself through the word of your son who left the gaze of heaven and exchanged the joy of heaven for the anguish of a cross. Christ suffered so that we could be free from the dominion of sin. You are God. You are our God, our rock and our redeemer. And in Christ, you are the one who's redeemed us from the curse of the law and from slavery to sin. Father, our, our lives were made to sing the truths of Psalm 19. Would you lift our eyes away from ourselves and to your glory? Would, would you lift our eyes away from our own wisdom? Would you lift to the perfect truth found in your word? Would you lift our hope away from ourselves and to our great Redeemer? And may you use us to invite people of every tribe and tongue and nation to do the same. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.